Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Please allow me to introduce you to our guest. Welcome, Peter McGraw, author of, and I love this name, Stick to Business. How's it going, Mark? Excellent, excellent, and so glad to have you here. And I think people love the title of the of our talk today. Uh, so first of all, Give the audience a little bit about your background and even some of the uh, what you teach and some of the consulting work that you do. Sure. Yes. Um, so I hate to break it to people, but stick to business is the the title is the best part of the book. <laughs> and so um, you've already got the best part. Um, so my name is Peter McGraw. I'm a behavioral economist. Uh, I'm a professor. I um, I teach and do research at the University of Colorado. I also um, teach MBA classes in marketing management for UC San Diego at the Rady School, and uh, and I've done some teaching for London Business School in um, program in Dubai. Um, I also teach a PhD course in behavioral economics, which I enjoy uh, quite a lot. And I have been doing research on emotions and decision making since I started graduate school many many years ago, and then about a dozen years ago pivoted uh, my research to study what makes things funny and its implications for living a remarkable life. The consulting work I do, so most of my stuff is is professional speaking, uh, talking about innovation, creativity, um, and trying to help businesses think differently, um, embrace risk-taking, um, in, in many ways to behave more like the masters of comedy. And then my consulting work on a um, on a more hands-on level also tr does that, actually implementing um, many of the ideas and facilitating uh, the ideas, including I have the ability to bring comedians into organizations to get sort of truly novel, truly creative, uh, rule-breaking ideas. Um, and so I, I get to be kind of like the comedy wrangler you know, so um, these are folks you don't want to hire and have on your staff full time. But if you want, um, if you want unique ideas, they're the people to, uh, to talk to. Well, I like that you talk about that they're rule breakers. And I've read a lot of books on comedy. One of the best uh, books on comedians I wrote was uh, Kevin Hart's autobiography. And you get a real appreciation of what it takes uh, to be a great comedian and how long it takes. You're never an overnight success in this business. It's really a lot of work. Why did you write this book? Well, Mark, I had to write this book. Um, I don't know if anybody in the audience has had that experience where you have an idea, you know, a business idea or otherwise, the moment you have it, you know that if someone else does it before you, you're going to be unhappy. And so what happened with me was I was doing, I was teaching MBAs by day, I was decoding comedy by night. And it was, it sort of felt like neither, you know, that I couldn't bring them together. And my first instinct to bring them together was to, to do some work about how to get ahead in business by being humorous. And I quickly realized how dangerous that idea is. Um, so anybody who's worked in an organization is aware of that guy, as I call him, you know, the guy who thinks he's funny. And, um, and that can be really can be a problem for an organization. So why would I create a talk and write a, write a book that tells everybody to be funny and then have to worry about that guy? And so I got invited to give a talk at Google and they, they had basically said, well, we already sort of have a topic kind of related to, to leadership and, and so on. So do you have something else for us? And I hit on this idea. And, and the idea is to get ahead in business, you don't need to be funny. You need to think funny and, and you have to be innovative. You have to be creative. You have to do things that no one else is doing. Businesses reward that. And, and as you know, businesses also reward risk-taking and no one else, in my opinion, does this better than the world's funniest people. 
because the nature of their work is that it rewards novelty to such a high degree that, that they have to, as you talked about, develop, which doesn't happen overnight, practices and perspectives that let them be successful creating this, this really challenging product, laughs. So um, the guy that you have as, that's helping you out in this book, this comedian that you constantly quote, tell us a little bit about him. Sure, so I have it. So the book is written, um, there's sort of three main elements to the book. There's the, the chapter, which, which um, has usually in it like sort of three lessons around um, some topic. In between chapters, I have what I call mini lessons. These are sort of lessons that weren't big enough for their own chapter. And then I have these breakouts called Shtick with Shane. And Shane is a, a stand-up comedian touring until COVID. Uh, his last name is Moss, Shane Moss, M-A-U-S-S. And he is a dear friend and he's a very funny guy. And so um, he sort of interjects himself into the book and gives the kind of comedian perspective on the kinds of things that I'm saying. Um, he often agrees with me, but sometimes he, he disagrees with me with my sort of uh, overly academic uh, view of it. And, um, and, he's, and he's very funny and witty and he has these great stories. It's, it's actually one of my favorite parts of the book. Comedians have a very high level of intelligence, right? I mean, it's rare that you're gonna find a comedian who isn't smart and aware. Oh yeah, so, so the research on humor. So first of all, when we talk about humor, there's sort of two sides of it. There's the production side of it. Um, that is, you know, uh, being pithy, witty, cracking jokes, being able to tell funny stories, uh, and so on. And then there's the appreciation side of it. Like, do you laugh easily? You know, we always we know that person who sort of laughs easily. They're a great kind of audience member. They're great to have at a dinner party or 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 to work with. But the research on predicting who is funny um, suggests that the people who are funny are highly intelligent. It's the best predictor of an ability to be funny. That's not entirely surprising because intelligence is also correlated with creativity. And then also intelligence is also correlated with knowledge. And so in order to be funny, it helps to be, to be quick and to have um, a really broad understanding of the world. Don't, don't we always look for people that have uh, a good sense of humor and can laugh at themselves? Well, you know, the people who really can't do that, they don't come across as very bright and very few lack, usually lack good leadership skills because they don't have that ability. Indeed, yeah. So one of the things that I'm, I'm really interested in is the notion of self-deprecation. And um, so if we are gonna talk about people who are funny in, in the workplace and in business and so on, I find that, that when done judiciously, especially for a leader, self-deprecation is a a good way to make a joke right because you're making fun of yourself you know you're not hurt you're not punching down so to speak um, and then the other one is it suggests that you're confident um, and it also invites critique that is if you're willing to criticize yourself it suggests to your um, to your co-workers your employees that um, that they should be able to do this and we want people to be able to critique ideas I mean, the leader may be the ultimate decision maker, but they want to be able to gather information and critical feedback is, is key to be able to make an informed idea. But I, as I say, judiciously, because we, we know that person who's sort of always cracking jokes, who's always being silly, who's sort of overly self-deprecating, and that person just seems like a clown and they're hard to respect. Oh, they're annoying. Exactly. Uh, could you please share with us uh, what you wrote in your book as your definition of comedy? Sure. Well, you know, so to me, there are these two elements. There's the humor side of things. That is the, the psychological side uh, of it. But, but comedy is the, is the product, right? Comedy is the, um, is the attempt to make the world laugh. And so in many ways, you know, so for the entrepreneurs in the room, you know, you're um, you know, your minimum viable product is, um, is akin to a joke that a comic is working on, right? And so, so comedy is the, is the product, it's the thing that is traded, is the thing that you're pursuing um, 
in terms of uh, the production. And then what you're hoping to get from that product is a laugh. Well, sometimes some of the ideas I've come up with and started uh, have made people very much laugh, but not the investors, <laughs> unfortunately. You know, but I, I actually think that that's not a bad thing because, and I think we'll get to this as we talk about what makes things funny, is I think that the truly innovative ideas, the world-changing ideas seem crazy at first, seem laughable at first. I'll, I'll use an example of this. Um, this is hard to remember, but Air, when Airbnb came out, people thought it was a joke. They're like, let me get this straight. You're going to let a stranger come into and live in your house, right? And, and they may be there and come down and, and get some milk out of the refrigerator, or you may leave all the things in your house behind and go somewhere else while this family moves into your house for a week. That will never work, right? That's a joke. And, and look what Airbnb has done uh, to um, essentially to the hotel industry. You know, it's um, and how it's changed rental markets. I mean, it's a it's a Goliath now. Well, I'm now dating myself, but we all remember the pet rock. And yeah, yeah and somebody <laughs> says, oh, I can sell people rocks. And they'd say those people must be dumb as a box of rocks. But the <laughs> person became super rich from from selling those things. Indeed. What's your what is the profile of a comedian and how are they like entrepreneurs? Okay, so um, I, I would say this, there's not, there's not one type of comedian, um, but in general, I would say these are people who have a kind of transgressive nature. That is that they don't, they don't play well within the normal kind of sandbox of school and, and the, you know, Monday to Friday, nine to five, or these days, eight to six. Um, these are people who, you know, tend to, to uh, pursue autonomy. They question the status quo. They question, why are we doing this? Why is this so important? And in that way, I think that they have a lot, to, lot in common with entrepreneurs. I think the, the average person who, who is an entrepreneur, they're not just pursuing wealth. They're not just pursuing a world-changing innovation. They don't want a boss. They want to work when they want to work, how they want to work, um, they don't like people telling them what to do. And so in that way, there's a lot of overlap between those, those two groups. The difference, of course, is that a comedian can try out his or her ideas and, um, and create a sort of lean startup within a day, you know, while it takes a little bit longer to spin up and, and try um, creating uh, products and services as, as an entrepreneur but they are both pursuing something that is, that is difficult to do, that is valued, and they're using this same mentality of a very kind of lean startup. I like to say that vaudeville was the first lean startup as these, as these uh, performers would get up on stage, try out jokes, pay attention to the audience. Oh, that one got a laugh, that one didn't get a laugh. I'm gonna try these tweaks to try to get bigger laughs. If it doesn't work, they throw the joke out move on to something else. Well, and they are incredibly resilient people because you bomb a lot before you find something that actually works. Yes, I appreciate you saying that. Actually, you know, that um, both entrepreneurship and comedy is built on the back of failure. That, that um, we try, you know, we often try in the world to succeed, but there is a lot more um, value in understanding those failures. The key though to both is to have very small failures to limit your downside risk with unlimited uh, upside potential. So a comic, it, their entire career can be built on a joke, on an idea. You know, so you think about Rodney Dangerfield, I can't get no respect, right? An entire career built on that simple idea. And it becomes part of a character, becomes part of a character who are in movies, stand up, and so on. Look how long Joan Rivers made fun of herself and all the plastic surgery that she had. And I have to tell you this: so, so Joan Rivers, you know, we know Joan Rivers from her, you know, big personality and and how withering she could be in terms of her critiques. But Joan Rivers was an outstanding business person. She's outstanding. Um, so one of the things that she did was. Um, was embrace QVC 
And she made tens of millions of dollars by going on to QVC and selling her products. And people thought it was a ridiculous idea when she did it. Like, you're Joan Rivers. Why are you basically doing infomercials? And, um, and we said, well, that got her. Yeah, she was very, very sophisticated. Uh, how did they learn to di uh, differentiate themselves? Because I read Kevin Hart's book, and he tried to, in the beginning, try to mimic other comedians. And the comedian who was kind of mentoring him said, you got to pick your own path. You can learn from us, but you got to totally differentiate yourself or you're never going to get ahead. So how do they learn to do that? Well, okay. So, yeah, so this is, you know, when I, so I teach an MBA class in marketing management. And I think one of the most critical concepts that I teach, and I just hammer my students about this, is that idea of differentiation. If you are offering the same solution as someone else, the only reason that someone should pick it is because you've lowered your prices. And, and that way, it's just a race to the bottom. But if you can find a different way, a better way, a more fitting way, or you know, perhaps a different target market, you can now stand out as unique, as one of a kind solution to someone's problems. Well, the, the fascinating world about comedy is that audiences don't want the same kinds of jokes and the same kinds of characters. They're looking for diverse perspectives. And so if you go to a comedy show and every single comic are telling, telling the same kinds of stories about the same kind of topics and the same affectations, and they all look the same way and they all sound the same way, which by the way, happens a lot if you go to an open mic night. You know, a lot of comics in their flip-flops and cargo shorts and t-shirts telling exactly the same kind of jokes. There's nothing novel or special about that. And that's what people are looking for. They're looking for that arousing, exciting um, kind of insight that can come from comedy. And so what ends up happening is early on in a career, people sort of behave a lot like they're the people who inspire them. Eddie Murphy, you know, a lot like Richard Pryor, but Eddie Murphy had to find his own voice. Uh, and in that way, what ends up happening is you end up sort of tweaking. And it's why in many ways, the comedy rewards authenticity. So that one of the best ways to be unique, to be novel, to be differentiated is to be truly who you are. And I would just say with the volume turned up a little bit, as, as you know, from, from Kevin Hart, Kevin Hart's a high energy guy, and I'm sure he is a high energy in his real life, but on stage, he's super high energy. You, you mentioned the book, and, and, and you don't find this with comedy. Unlike rock groups where there are cover bands that imitate, there's no such thing as a cover comedian, right? It's very, very rare. Only I've only seen it a, a couple times, um, and these are truly elite performers. But yeah, so, so if, you're, if you're the Rolling Stones, you can go and play Sympathy for the Devil at every single show for 50 years and people are thrilled about that. They want the hits. But if I'm a comedian and I tell the same jokes in your town that I did the last time I was there, people are saying, I know that joke. Because comedy plays on novelty so much, it forces, comedians have, I think, such a hard job because they can never rest on their laurels. They're constantly creating new stuff. Their, you know, their old special is their old special. Um, and they sort of, and so like George Carlin, for example, would famously throw out all of his material after he taped a special. And on the next day, begin fresh with zero minutes of material and build it up to 60 more minutes and then tape another special, rinse and repeat. <laughs> are, are, are people born funny or can they learn to be funny? Because you know, all the, so many people take these comedy workshops. They are, so, so, so to repeat your question, are people born funny, do they learn to be funny? And the answer is yes. And make a living at it. Yeah, so, so I, you know, to make a living at it, you do, I believe, need some natural talent. Um, there is some natural talent. In the same way that if you wanted to make your living as an NBA player, it helps to be tall. But, but that's not necessary. 
Um, I mean, excuse me, that's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So what happened, and the reason we know that, that being kind of born funny, naturally funny is not, is not sufficient for success as a comic is that find me the 18 year old comic who is hilarious and making millions and millions of dollars. No, the people who are funny are more established. They're in their 30s, they're in their 40s. It takes years of experience in order to develop these muscles and in order to get good, good enough to, to really excel in this very difficult craft. And so what, what that is, they're learning to develop their voice. They're learning to develop the actual grind of creating jokes. When, when you watch a comic on stage, it seems as if they're just coming up with these ideas in the moment, you know, bam, bam, bam. But those things are often very heavily scripted, planned out in advance. And I'll, I'll use an example of this. So for folks who, who remember Robin Williams at his peak doing, uh, doing these one-man shows, it appears as what he is doing is just coming, you know, coming off the top of his head. He used to practice his. Um, uh, he used to practice in his house that character and behaving in that kind of way, so that it was just so natural that it seemed to be in the moment, and yet much of that was planned. I also like with comedians that when somebody goes after them, somebody's drunk, or they just feel like they're going to um, try to toy with the comedian, that they're not only resilient but they're fast on their feet at coming back. Uh, with a good response. And I think that's something for entrepreneurs to learn. Indeed, yes. Yeah, well, you know, so one of the things that I, the, I think the lesson is this. So, if, so if then, you know, so Shane talks about this um, to me is that heckling is really not the problem, um, but, it, but it, you know, it's sort of very noticeable. But when it does happen, when there's someone drunk and they start to heckle a comedian, um, the comedian will do nearly whatever it takes to to quash that and and they have an advantage a they have a microphone and that other person doesn't b um they're used to dealing with this and so they're naturally funnier than anybody who's in the audience and c they have security right so in that way they're they have a great advantage but the reason that they they put an end to this often very quickly is that they care about their audience they care about the laughs and this person is getting in the way of that. And so they don't tolerate that. And they're not, they're not concerned with that individual's feelings because they care about the experience of all the other paying customers. And I do think that, that entrepreneurs should understand that A, they can't make everyone happy, and B, they have to make their target audience more than happy, delighted, and so there is something to be learned from a, a comic, a comedian who see, may seem unnecessarily harsh, but they're being unnecessarily, excuse me, they're being necessarily harsh for the betterment of the rest of the audience. What can entrepreneurs take away from that when they're presenting to investors? And you always have a couple of investors in the audience who try to prove that they're smarter than the entrepreneur or trying to catch the aha. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a tough one. I mean, I, I guess my thing is this, is that if, if you have an entrepreneur, excuse me, if you have an investor who's so skeptical and is in this very competitive mode, I'm not sure they're the person that you want investing in your company. And the reason is that an investor does more than give you money. A good investor gives you information, gives you connections, they want to see you succeed. They naturally have, yes, they have a critical eye. They should, you want your, your investor group to be critical, but essentially they see themselves as being on your team and cooperating with you to build something great. And so this may sound counterintuitive, but I would say that if, if you're getting that, that kind of, not critiques, but you're getting that idea of like, we are kind of adversarial, this is zero sum, I'm going to win, you're going to lose. I would not be afraid to walk away. You write about the different types of comedians. What are they? So, um, so yeah, I, you know, I like this idea. So, it, so in the book, I talk about the value of constraints. 
And so we have a tendency to think about constraints as a bad thing. You know, we're all so busy. We don't have enough capital, right? We don't have enough energy. These are constraints and they get in the way of productivity and, and so on. But not all constraints are bad. And the reason is, is that what a constraint can do is it can, it can make you think more creatively. And whether that be to work harder or just to think more divergently. Well, the, one of the ultimate constraints in, in comedy are comics who, who essentially are clean comics. They create a constraint that says, I'm not going to go blue. I'm not going to use dirty words. I'm not going to talk about super taboo topics. And, um, and what's fascinating about those, and, and of course, they're the rarity, but oftentimes they're among the most successful Right? So the Jim Gaffigans of the world and the Ellen DeGeneres of the world and, and, and so on. Even, you know, even Jerry Seinfeld um, in, in many ways is a, is a largely clean comedian. And the reason that those folks are so successful is the constraint, A, makes them take the mundane, the regular every day and make it funny. And because again, they're clean, they're widely appealing. They're as close as you can get to a universal um, form of comedy because what they're doing is finding the things that are um, kind of challenging in our normal everyday lives and uh, and taking that and twisting them and making it an enjoyable conversation. I had my own interaction with Jerry Seinfeld. I was at that conference and was having breakfast and he was sitting a couple tables over. And so he engaged me and I didn't know who he was. This is early nineties. And he asked me, and we were in Buffalo. He said, what do you think about Buffalo? I said, it's like a prison without walls. And so he, he laughed and I didn't think anything more about it. But then somebody told me later that they saw him in the show. And he said, hey, I had breakfast this morning and then this guy and I asked him, so what do you think of Buffalo? And I said, yeah, he said, yeah, it's like a prison without walls. And so they take they listen to other people all the time and and leverage what they hear and see as part of what they put together. Absolutely, what a great story. And also it's wonderful that he, he didn't quote unquote steal that joke. He, he gave you credit for that joke. Um, you know, think about this as, as business people, as entrepreneurs, we ought to be looking at the world and paying attention to it because that's where the opportunities lie. So think about, think about Uber. Right, you know, so so here, here we live in a world of an imperfect system. I'm somewhere I need to get home. You know, you, you've had you've had one too many drinks and you need to get home. Right? Well, you know, the buses aren't running, it's too late, it's a little too far to walk. I can't call someone and wake them up. Well, I guess I could call a taxi, but we all knew and know what a headache taxi taxis are. The average person just says, damn it, I, I guess I'm going to wait. And, you know, and instead someone goes, there's got to be a better way. Why can't there be a way for me to now get on this device, this phone, and have uh, this seamless interaction where the car comes, picks me up, takes me home. And if, if anybody remembers, Uber started as just a little tweak to the system. You know, there are these black car services yes. and these black car drivers spend a lot of time just sitting around waiting for, um, for their pickup. And so there was slack in the system. And the idea is I'm, I'm going to use that hour I'm waiting and make some extra ducats. And it takes an entrepreneurial mind to recognize there's a problem. And as we like to say, there's got to be a better way. There's got to be a better mousetrap. Any thoughts on how humor can be effectively used by consumer direct financial service brands where the consumer expectation might perhaps be more of a formal, serious communication from the brand? Okay, so that I think is an interesting, a very interesting um, question. And so what I think is the answer is yes, of course. Now, um, I can't tell you exactly how to do it, but I can tell you how to think about it, right? So, so if the norm in consumer financial services is the serious, you know, we think about like, um, you know, the, the, the older gentleman in the three-piece suit 
we are going to take good care of your money. We are the experts, right? And if everybody is doing that, what I ask is comedy a way to differentiate yourself, especially with a particular target market. So you always have to work backwards from who is the ideal customer. And so let's suppose you're trying to, um, to target young people and those young people naturally question and are suspicious of that older gentleman serious in his three-piece suit. And so the question is, is there a different voice, um, a different brand, a different feeling that you want to be able to develop? And in that way, there might be a witty way to develop messaging around consumer financial services. And so I think there's potential, but of course, you have to approach it a lot like comics do, which is how does this material work with my particular audience? Uh, what's benign violation theory and what does it have to do with comedy? Okay, so, um, so this is what got me to where I am right now. And that is that I was um, studying emotions and decision-making. I actually was doing research on ethical um, decision-making, moral violations and so on. And I stumbled on this question of what makes things funny. And this question is an age old question. It goes back 2,500 years to Plato and Aristotle. And people a lot smarter than me have been trying to crack the humor code. Emmanuel Kant, Thomas Hobbes, uh, um, Sigmund Freud, and so on. What they lacked, however, was the ability to run experiments. And that's something that I can do really quite well. And, um, and that's what I was doing day to day in, in my job um, as a professor and behavioral economist. And the work, and I actually started a lab called the Humor Research Lab, which we affectionately refer to as HURL. And, um, and we started trying to, to crack the humor code um, because the existing theories of comedy, I thought, were lacking. Um, they were too complex. They didn't do a good job of explaining what makes things funny really broadly. They didn't solve the puzzles associated with humor. And the, the work that we, excuse me, the model that we arrived on, as you called it, is, um, is the benign violation theory. And the idea is that we laugh at, we're amused by things that are wrong yet okay, things that are threatening yet safe, or things that don't make sense yet make sense. And so in many ways, what, what is happening with comedies, you're trying to hit this sweet spot between boring and too risque. And that model does a very good job of explaining um, why we laugh at a broad array of things from sort of pratfalls to puns. And then it also explains, for example, the two ways that a humor attempt can fail. A joke can be too boring, like a knock-knock joke, or it can be outrageous, like a, um, like a racist or sexist joke. And so what comics are trying to do is um, kind of thread that needle and, um, and hit that sweet spot and create what we call a benign violation. Uh, you know, I think a lot of us have watched Mrs. Maisel. Have you watched that? A little bit, yeah. I, I was wondering what you thought of, uh, of that and the persona that how she developed herself as a comedian and what we could take away from that. Well, you know, so, I mean, of course, the, the, the problem with, uh, with that show is that the actual stand-up's not that funny. Um, and the reason is, is because she's not actually developing it out on the road the way, um, the way a normal stand-up would be doing it. But there is this sort of idea that, um, well, I want to ask you, what is it that you think that makes her approach so interesting? Uh, I think um, her experience talking about what happens in her family, mm. that's what I think is interesting. Indeed, yeah. So so um, I do like this idea. So people often say it's kind of a cheat code to comedy. And actually, I think the sort of cheat code to to being successful in life is to pursue authenticity. I think that people are really, really good at figuring out who's a phony. And, um, and what, what people delight in and what people find to be compelling, whether it be within storytelling, um, you know, brand storytelling or otherwise, and, um, or comedy is the idea that, that this is the true person. As I said, it may be an exaggerated person, but deep down, this is the true person. And there's nothing as interesting as real life. You know, so anybody who watched the Tiger King would joke, you can't make this up. 
That is that these people are are so authentic, are so real, that if you asked a writer to create a fictitious character, you couldn't come up with Carol Baskin and, and um, uh, what's his name, Joe? Yeah, I forget his name, yes. Oh my goodness, I can't believe it. Right, like, you know, and so, so that is sort of a cheat code to, as a starting point to, to create comedy. I think of um, Sebastian Maniscalco as kind of the perfect example of um, of the person who takes their real life, takes their unique look at it, um, exaggerates it a bit, and um, and tells these wonderful stories about his family that are um, that are really really hilarious. And then of course what he adds to it is the theatrics, the act outs, the energy, the things that make it entertaining. Why does a man telling a joke enhance his status? And you write this in the book, but not a woman. Ah, yes. This is this is actually in a business context, so I should be very clear about this. And um, there is a tendency for people to say, you know, go forth and be funny. Humor is a good thing. Um, but, a, but a recent study, this is a really upsetting study, frankly, in, in which these researchers had male and females telling jokes as part of a presentation. And, and even though the jokes were equally funny, um, when you when you surveyed people who were observing this and asked them about the the person giving the presentation, the the male um, presenters, Joe Exotic, thank you <laughs> for the person who said it, Joe Exotic, you're the man. I appreciate that. Um, and and so the the problem is, even though the presentations were equally funny, the men's status was elevated by this and the females wasn't. And that's deeply disturbing. And it shows you how, um, how, the, how the world can be really quite sexist. And so to tell everybody to go, go forth and be funny, I think is unfair um, because the world ends up being unfortunately unfair in this, in this regard. And so that's why, as I said at the, at the outset of this, I don't want people to go and be funny per se. I want them to think funny. I want them to think differently. And I think that there's a lot to learn from these. I, you know, now when I think about it, if a man's funny in business, they think he's charming, but it, but I've never really heard women try to be funny because I think they're still trying to work at being taken seriously. It's, it, it is an unfair game. It, thankfully, it's becoming more fair, but it's still, there's a lot, I think, to, to, of work to do um, within and across organizations. Are, are the comedy of men and women different? And if so, how? Well, I, you know, so when you say men or women, I think it depends a little bit on whether you're talking about professionals or, or non-professionals. So let's talk with professionals. So in, when it comes to professionals, I think the answer is no. I don't think that there's major differences. I think funny is funny and the, and the, the world's funniest female comedians are, are, um, are as funny as the world's uh, male comedians. Um, I think that um, the only difference that you find is in terms of number. And that is that, um, that, that men have, um, they have more mentors, right? So when you look back, you know, so like if you look at the comedians, if, if people in the audience think about the comedians that they saw when they were growing up, the leads on television shows and so on, they're overwhelmingly men. And so there are there are more mentors and and um, um, and uh, in people of inspiration um, that is obviously changing as you're seeing more and more women for um, um, who are who are, again, I say our leads, our, our writers, our um, are comedy bookers, uh, you know, and so on. And so essentially the professional ranks are sort of stacked with more men, not because they're funnier, but because um, it's a little bit more welcoming and accommodating to them. And again, thankfully that is changing. We're seeing, you know, more and more um, women, both in, in sketch, stand up and improv. Um, and as a result, they have more inspiration, people to be inspired by and more mentors and so on. In the non-professional ranks, the, the little bit of research that I think has been done, I find one, well, there are sort of two general um, differences. One is when you ask people um, about a sense of humor and how they find it valuable, both men and women find it to be a highly desirable trait. There is a slight difference, and that is 
typically when you ask um, a woman, she says, oh, I'd like my partner to be funny, to, you know, to make me laugh. And then when you ask a man, he says, I'd like my partner to laugh easily. So there is a, there is a, a bit of a difference from it. And, and you can argue that, that, it, that it's from an evolutionary standpoint. The little bit of work that I've done in Hurl suggests that, that if you look at um, just laughs you, and you ask um, non-professional men and non-professional women to be funny, at first blush, um, it looks as if men get more laughs than women. But what you end up finding out is that if you measure failures, that men tend to fail by going too far yeah. across the line. And so women are actually better in general at threading that needle because when they fail, they're more likely to fail on the benign side rather than on the violation side. And so um, it really depends if you want to make a broad, and I, I'm careful about making sort of broad strokes about gender because men and women are more alike than they are different, um, is that um, I think that women tend to be a little more judicious in terms of the, the jokes that they have and men tend to. Um, they may get some bigger laughs at times, but they also have bigger failures. Well, like that uh, woman, uh, Kathy, who uh, cut off uh, President Trump's head, right? Kathy Griffin, yeah. yes, that's right. You know, so she, she for, by the way, not for everyone, right? That's one of the very difficult things, both about comedy and business, is you can't make everyone happy, right? And so in a world, as I like to say, so I have a, one of the chapters in the book is called Create a Chasm. And so in a world where some people want hot tea and some people want iced tea, if you serve the world warm tea in order to try to make everyone happy, no one is happy. Yeah, right, for sure. And, and so comics are, they know that a good joke can't make everyone laugh. They just want the audience that they care about, the one in front of them to laugh. And they don't worry about the folks who aren't there and aren't happy. Uh, what is and how do you think funny? I thought it would just be natural to people. No, I don't think, I don't think that it's natural to think, um, to think funny. And the reason is, is because to think funny is to, to break rules, is to, to think non-normatively. And when you think about it, what, what the world is trying to do, so think about, think about our educational system from, from K through 12, especially, but even college, they are trying to get, they want you to be, sit in your seat, read, remember, regurgitate. They want you to follow the rules. Now, this is very damaging if you want to create innovative products. If you want to, and by the way, if you're, we're living in a world where the, you know, where um, algorithms, where robots, where AI are starting to take jobs, the jobs that are at risk are jobs that are rule following jobs. When X happens, I do Y. But think about it, the truly groundbreaking innovations in the world are ones that are, as I said, seem crazy at first because they're so different. And so novelty, so creativity, let's say, so my, my definition of creativity is an original appropriate solution. So let's unpack that for a moment. So obviously you want to solve the problem. There's no reason why anybody would buy your mousetrap if it doesn't catch mice. But for it to be a creative mousetrap, it has to be original. That is, it has to catch mice in a way that no one else has done, right? You know, it has to be, um, it has to be in, in some way different and differentiated. But it's very hard to get to that novelty to get to that originality if you don't um, start to break some rules, which is a mousetrap is supposed to do this. It's supposed to look this way. It's supposed to sound this way. It's supposed to be put in this kind of place. And, and, um, and so we live in a world that wants everybody to behave in particular ways, and yet we get rewarded for breaking rules within reason, of course, you know, in the same way, um, you know, I'm not talking about breaking rules in terms of, of white collar crime. I'm talking about breaking rules in terms of, of this is the way it's supposed to be. And someone goes, I'm not sure it needs to be that way. How to, how to start thinking funny? How do you start thinking funny? Yeah, so I mean, I think you have to start slowly, right? Because this is not something that happens overnight. So 
Um, so chapter one in the book is called Reverse It. And in many ways, I, I introduced that chapter as kind of a case study in thinking funny. And so, um, so let's talk about, about what's called the reversal. So the reversal is comedy 101. Um, you know, so the average comedian either sort of has natural instincts about this or learns it sort of first day on the job. And so, um, so let's take Henny Youngman for a moment. So for folks in the audience may remember Henny Youngman as the king of the one-liners. He, he had actually this violin and he would, play, he, would, he would play little songs and so on, snippets between his, his bits. And he has a joke, and I'm, I'm, I don't know if you'll remember this, Mark, but I'm going to test you on this. So he has a one-liner that says, when I read about the dangers of drinking, <laughs> I, I stopped. And what is the end of that joke? Do you remember this? I forget. I forget, but I remember I saw him live say this. Yeah. So he said, when I... Um, when I read about the dangers of drinking, I stopped. And, and so the normal thing is, yes, you, he stopped reading. That's right. So thank you, Chuck and others that are there. Versus, so the, the rule following idea is, I, I heard the danger, that drinking is dangerous, so I stopped drinking. So, so you know, and Chris Rock in Tambourine, his, his Netflix special has, um, has a bit in it about how bullies are good. Right. And so, you know, the world can we can all agree that bullies are bad, you know, and, and schools have have anti-bullying policies. And Chris Rocks makes an impassioned case for the value of bullies. That is that they prepare you for a harsh world. Everybody thinks bullies are bad. Chris Rock makes the case for bullies are good. And it's very, very funny comedy as a result. So t producing this opposing perspective is often a good way to um, begin thinking about breaking rules and, and deviating from the, from the status quo. I'll give you a business example of this. So two Brooklyn-based entrepreneurs get into the, um, decide they're going to get into the smartphone market. And, and the natural question is, how do you outsmart Apple and Samsung in the smartphone market, right? Tons of engineers, tons of, of, uh, of intellectual capital and so on. And what these guys decide to do is not to make a smarter phone, but rather to make a dumber phone. <laughs> they think in reverse, right? And so what they do is they create a phone, they call it the light phone two, AKA the dumb phone. And it's for people who not want to be more connected, but rather who want to be less connected. And so as I talked to one of the founders, he said, you don't need to bring a microcomputer to the farmer's market. Right, you just need something that does texting, calls, simple navigation, you know, has a little note, notebook in there, and so on. And so thinking in reverse opens up a wide range of possibilities for them in business. So I would say, as a case study, learn to think in reverse. I actually have a um, a, a session that I do with my clients called shitstorming. So it's like reverse brainstorming, or the HR friendly term is shtick storming, in which you, um, you brainstorm truly terrible ideas as part of a, a warm up for a more a, a greater innovation session. And what's amazing about that, first of all, is, is shit storming is super fun, and it removes the barrier to brainstorming, which is people tend to have a tendency to hold back their ideas. Um, the other one is, that, um, that sometimes someone goes, you know, that's so crazy, that uh, that's so crazy, that might actually work. Right, right. One of the questions we have here is, why is that some people can be blisteringly funny spontaneously, but cannot tell a joke? I cannot tell a joke. Ah, well, because there's different forms of comedy. You know, and so one of the, so in, in the book, the lessons that I, that I present are drawn not just from the world of standup, which is what we've been talking about, where, where comics are sort of writing out their ideas and then testing them on stage and developing them into to a set. But there is also improvisational comedy, so creating comedy out of nothing. Um, and so that, you know, and then also sketch comedy, which is the writing that underlies television and film. And so one person might be a great writer joke teller, and another person might be a great improviser. And so some of it just depends on someone's own sort of personal skills and interests and, 
and so on. And so I, what I like to say is you should lean in. Of course, like if you're interested in being a professional comic, yeah, you should take improv classes um, because there are improv improvisational elements to performing on a stage. And if you are a sketch writer, you should probably work on doing some stand-up. But, um, but in general, the idea is you should, should play to what your strengths are. And so some people are sort of quick-witted and some people are more sort of methodical in terms of their writing. And even within stand-up, you have these sort of two styles of stand-up. You have the kind of Jerry Seinfelds who are, who are kind of tacticians. They're, they're very eloquent joke writers and they're, they're sort of writers first and then on stage performer persona second. And then you have like the Dave Chappelle's of the world who are sort of big personalities and charismatic and have to develop their writing chops um, in order to, and both of those styles can work. It's just, it's just, are you a performer first, writer second, or a writer first, performer second? So people in the audience may remember Mitch Hedberg. Mitch Hedberg is an incredible joke writer. I mean, if you watch his stand-up, his jokes are still funny today. They're just incredibly smart and witty, but he was a terrible performer. You know, he would perform with like, his hair in front of his eyes, sunglasses on, because he just wasn't comfortable on stage. But his material was so good, it still let him be uh, successful. Pete, I think one of the things that they were, they were thinking is uh, just the average person. Why are some people ah. spontaneously funny and some people are great at telling jokes? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think some of this is just what is the experience that you've had through your, your years on this planet? And what I would say is, I believe, this is a controversial opinion, I actually believe that everybody is funny. It's just a matter of finding who are you funny to and what is the medium. So, for example, I had, I had a girlfriend for, for a while, and if you met her, you wouldn't think that she was that funny. You know, she was, she was a little bit introverted. She wasn't the life of the party. You know, she was an interesting conversationalist, but, but no one would think that she was funny meeting her. I thought she was hysterical because her writing was so funny. Like she would send me these text messages that, that would make me laugh out loud. And so um, I think it would be unfair to say she wasn't funny. It's just that she was a funny writer. She was a pithy writer and she was very good one-on-one -on -one in that way. While I was like the person who might be the, the life of the party at the dinner party. And so what I would say is, is that, um, you know, I like to say, play to your strengths and don't worry about your weaknesses. And so um, if you wanna have a little bit more fun in life as an individual, pay attention to where it is that you're getting positive feedback about your funniness, lean into that. I would say this, if you do wanna develop more comedy chops, take an improv class because an improv class is doubly beneficial. One is it'll help you make you more spontaneously funny. And also improv training is good training for life and business more generally, where, we, where most of our lives and most of our business lives are improvisational. Will AI and uh, robots ever replace comedians? No. And you talk about that in your book as well. They're not. I do, yeah. And the reason is because comedy is built on breaking rules, not following rules. And so what AI does very, very well is follow rules. It follows rules faster and more consistently than humans can. And it's why, um, it's why radiologists are going to lose their jobs to AI because that's a rule-based job. But comics are rewarded for breaking rules and AI doesn't do that very well. And so what I always tell people is look to gravitate towards a profession um, and to businesses that are built on breaking rules, because that is where um, that is where you're going to excel in the, in the coming 20 years. Uh, is there a rule of thumb for how much how much time you have to spend per minute in a comedy show? So if Chris Rock puts on an hour show, how much time does he have to put in to create enough material for one hour? Is that like three months working eight hours a day, five days a week? Is there a formula? There's not a formula. The sort of the sort of kind of heuristic is is it's a it's about a year to get sixty minutes of material. Now this is pre-COVID, right? COVID is making this stuff difficult because and and it is 
it, of course, like it takes Jerry Seinfeld and Chris Rock less time than someone else, perhaps, because they're just so talented. So Dave Chappelle may do this, do this especially quickly. However, the sort of rule of thumb is about a year and you are trying material out on stage, you know, four to six days a week um, and, and, and honing this material. And as I said, punching up jokes, tweaking them. And then, you know, after a while, you're like, I've been trying this joke for, for three weeks. It's not going anywhere and throwing it in the trash bin. So that's a lot of uh, investment. I mean, if you're talking about a year for product development, you know, for them to do an hour could cost them, um, depending on what, how much they make, could be a quarter of a million to a couple million bucks for them to go and develop that one hour special. Yes. Now, of course, uh, the, what's happening among the, the greats is they're working on other things, right? They're working on scripts and they're working, you know, they're working on, on movies and so on. And then for the very good people, they're getting paid to test out their material. That is, they're getting, you know, they're, they're going right. to comedy clubs and so on. But sometimes they're just dropping in. So I'm in Los Angeles right now. And, uh, you know, Bill Burr just drops into the comedy store and does a 10 minute set on a Tuesday night. And in that set, he's not really being paid. He's just working on new material. But because he's Bill Burr, that stuff's already pretty good, um, even though it's not good enough for Netflix. So uh, one of the questions I uh, thought was interesting is you write the key to truly creative and innovative solutions is to ignore your first thought. Why? And is there a limit to where you have over one thought and idea? Yeah, I, so so I call this lesson third thoughts. And the idea is, you know, we have a first thought, you know, we talk about, oh, I'm having second thoughts. When, when, we, when we talk about creativity, right, that originality, it can come via two pathways. One is, is out of the box or what we call divergent thinking. The other way is just simply the grind of coming up with ideas. And what happens is, if, so for example, if you're, on, if you're on the cast of Saturday Night Live, you pitch sketch ideas. And what Lorne Michaels will say is, that's a nice idea, but that's a first premise idea. That's the obvious idea. It's the idea that the audience would come up with. I want you to come up with the premise that's not obvious. And so what often happens is, again, like for example, my first thought was to write a book about how humor can help you get ahead in business by being funny. I'm glad I didn't write that book. I'm glad I had second thoughts, which was you can get ahead by thinking funny. And that's really what, what, that, what that book does. So, you know, I have, a, I have this thing where I do, where I'm like, let's say I'm brainstorming a title for a project, a name for a project. I will print out these sheets with a hundred grids, like a hundred squares. And I will, um, I'll try to fill in all 100 of the squares. Then the idea being that it might take 47 before I hit on the big one, you know, that's there. And so I think what ends up happening is too oftentimes entrepreneurs settle on an idea too early. They don't sort of bang on it long enough to come up with something that no one else would have come up with. I also think that's why with entrepreneurs, uh, your, your ideas evolve over time. You start with one idea, but as you start to develop it, new things come. So I have a new venture and it took a year until we finally launched this venture. And that's because new things kept coming up and we kept uh, making adjustments into it. And then we finally said, okay, now we're ready. Um, let me ask you this. And we have just time maybe for two quick answers to two questions. Is sure. there an expiration date on the humor of a comedian like there are in some products, musicians and movie stars? I ask this because Soupy Sales, Flip Wilson, David Brenner, they all seem to me to have a period where they were very hot and then they weren't. Yeah, and I think that is true. It's it's a tough, I mean, I, I don't think anyone, I mean, I'm surprised anyone really pursues this as a career rather than as a hobby. Because, you know, I think about like Stephen Wright, for example, you know, like people have their moment. And then what happens is the audience starts to look for something new and novel and different. And novelty is so important in the world of comedy, you may have your moment. And then unless you change, unless you shift, it's easy for you to kind of get left behind. And so I think the answer to that is absolutely. 
there, there needs to be a reinvention. But the problem is, it's just, it's already so hard to create that moment of magic to try to recreate it time and time again, it's difficult to do. So you better make your money at that moment. Absolutely. So here, here's my last question. You mentioned uh, that a movie is being made on, on your life. Was that a joke or is that seriously happening? So I am, I am in the development phase of a TV show um, based upon my first book called The Humor Code, A Global Search for What Makes Things Funny. That's why you're in LA now? Uh, I mean, it's, it's uh, an added benefit. Yeah, I'm on leave right now uh -huh. and, um, and so on. So we are, we're in the, we're, I mean, I'm not optimistic because it's hard to get a TV show made, but we are, we are actually, I had a pitch yesterday um, to, to turn this uh, book into a TV show, which, which would really be quite fun. Well, I can't tell you how much we all enjoyed hearing about your book, your perspective on comedy and all the research that you've done in that area. Uh, we look forward to seeing the show when it comes live. We hope we're going to have you back and that you'll do uh, write another book in this area so we can discuss that as well. It'd be my pleasure. I hope everyone has a great and wonderful and safe weekend. Please make sure you're wearing your mask. And um, Peter, again, it was a pleasure having you and best of luck with your book. I appreciate it. Mark, you're a total pro and uh, thank you for hosting. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.